Would you like to hear the story and find out how a once great river was impacted by the western expansion of the United States? And what was the biggest impact here that affected this once lush and diverse area? You can find out how tourism and fishing has taken over from the old land use activities and how these local restoration projects have improved the habitat here. Corey McCaffrey is here today from the Wood River Land Trust to share this story and the history of the Wood River and the streams and the areas around this part of the country. And you're going to find out how you can do some great things for the fish species you love in your own area. This is the Wet Fly Swing Podcast where we show you the best places to travel to for fly fishing, how to find the best resources and tools to prepare for that trip, and what you can do to give back, to give back to the fish species we all love. Hey, I'm Dave, host of the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, and I've been fishing and fly fishing since I was a kid. I grew up in the fly shop and have created one of the largest fly fishing podcasts in this country. I've also interviewed more of the greatest fly anglers than just about anyone in this country. Today, Corey McCaffrey is going to give us the three actions today that you can do to support your local restoration and fish species in your area. We will also find out how a species of trout can evolve into its own unique fish species based on natural features in the landscape and what Corey and others are doing to help recover this great part of the basin. Plus, you're going to find out how Idaho is just a little bit different than a lot of the Western states when it comes to this type of work. Time to give back. Here we go. Corey McCaffrey from woodriverlandtrust.org. How you doing, Corey? Dave, I'm good. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for doing this episode. We, um, are excited. Uh, I'm excited. I'm going to be heading to your neck of the woods. I've driven, I think out there, I've been around the area, but we're doing an event, uh, our, our school this year, our clinic, it's our Euro Nymphing clinic. We're going to be out on the wood river with Pete Erickson, uh, this year. And, um, and so I want to learn about the area that you guys are in and maybe talk about some of the, you know, the concerns, some good things that are going on, maybe some things that people can learn about, like, you know, maybe conservation or just land trust in general. So, but before we get there, take us back to fly fishing really quick. How'd you get into fly fishing and what's your first memory? Yeah, perfect. I think that sounds like a, a good place to start. Um, I think, so I, I kind of grew up as an athlete and um, played college football at Portland State and um, had some fun years there and then got out of college and kind of went through a period of like, you know, what's my next... Um, what's my next thing that I'm going to, you know, really kind of get my teeth into as kind of a young adult. And, uh, having grown up my, I grew up in central Oregon, um, outside of Bend, um, and sisters near the Metolius and, uh, spent some time fishing on the Deschutes, um, with, with my uncle and some of his buddies and, um, my great grandfather, he lived most his life in, in Bend, Oregon, and he was an avid, uh, fly tire and he actually used to own property along the Deschutes River and so I just remember going over to his house you know as as a young kid and seeing his fly fishing workshop down in his basement and just thinking like wow this is a cool <laughs> thing that I didn't know people did or existed and you know just kind of was really curious about what what my great-grandfather was doing and um, I think as I got older um, I learned to kind of appreciate that the the sport and that it was kind of a you know it's more of an old timey sport and i think it's kind of getting a lot of traction nowadays just because of the sort of meditative slowed aspects of it and so kind of how i got involved into fishing and conservation is um seeing seeing old photos of my great grandfather with 
uh, huge trout coming out of the Deschutes or Paulina Lake um, and being like, wow, that's cool. I'd like to go do that for myself. And so started getting into um, fishing and, and trying to figure out how all this works without really having a, a mentor. He passed when I was uh, probably 11 or 12. And having talked with, you know, people in the region, it just sounds like since maybe the the 80s or early 90s, the fishing has really declined. And when I talk about that, I, I'm really focusing on uh, the Deschutes and steelhead runs. And I know there's a couple good years in there, but in general, um, things just weren't what they used to be. And, you know, my feeling was like, that's um, that's a big bummer. I, I'd love to catch more and big fish. How do I go about doing that? Or what what can I do to to help? And so that was kind of my origin story or genesis into getting into conservation because i wanted to you know do something that could improve the fishery in, in whatever aspect that was so that was kind of the start wow that's that's cool yeah and so we've talked a lot a lot of steelhead and there definitely have been you know ups and downs and things are down right now um but you know i think it's interesting so, so you so maybe let's just fast forward a little bit to the wood river land trust i'm sure you there was a lot in between you know you're, you're the kid and down the basement to now but how did you land yourself in the wood river and the land trust yeah, so I uh, got my master's degree in aquatic ecology from Portland State, did that for a couple of years, took a job out of Walla Walla, Washington, um, doing some NGO work over there. And then I have lived here in the Wood River Valley since 2021 um, and started on as their restoration specialist. And then um, my former supervisor took a job with Forest Service at the Ketchum Ranger Station. So basically I kind of took over his role as the river program director here at the land trust. And that's been since 2022. Wow. That's great. So, and what are some of the projects I want to get into the background of the area too, but maybe just start us off with high level people that don't know what you have going. And we've talked to some land trusts as well around the country, but maybe tell us on your area, you know, what does a land trust do? Yeah, totally. So we've we've been around since uh, maybe the mid '90s, um, and we do obviously kind of your run-of-the-mill land trust work, and a lot of that is working with uh, the community, working with ranches, um, farms, and just protecting lands that have high conservation value, or protecting working lands um, to help conserve critical habitat for wildlife. You know, preserving scenic views in the valley and also help contribute to sort of the local agricultural economy. What's interesting about the land trust though, is that we have a pretty robust river program. And this is not, it's not common among land trusts to have a, a dedicated river program. So um, since I came on a couple of years ago, this has only, only grown and um, it's, we're we're very uniquely positioned to do restoration work because we either you know have acquired properties along the riparian cor corridor, or we work with farms and ranches that are along the riparian corridor. So we're we're positioned well to do work because we are either the landowner or work with the folks that directly manage the land. Gotcha. So so some of the things that you do is so is there a lot of. Uh, acquisition of properties that go into protection or is it more actually implementing projects on the ground? Um, it's a mix of a little bit of both. And, you know, it just kind of depends on where we're acquiring the properties and if there's um, water resources there. But I think one of the things that most people will, you know, recognize about the land trust is the work that we've done with the city of Haley 
on protecting what's called the Haley Greenway. And this is about um, maybe one and a half miles of river frontage that's uh, directly adjacent to the downtown center that runs from the Bullion Bridge, basically all the way down into Colorado Gulch. And we're currently working on another acquisition uh, for about 30 acres that's just south of that area. So the kind of the, you know, the big, the long-term vision is to keep adding as much space to this greenway um, and have that be a protected space where, you know, the river can kind of do its thing. And it makes it great for us because we're able to do projects within that space where there's, you know, been historical degradation, armored banks. And so we've we've done one project down in Colorado Gulch, and we're looking to do another one this summer in partnership with the city of Haley. There's a park called Eagle Park there, and the banks basically rode probably 80 feet towards their pump station in the past um, 20 or 30 years. And so the pump station takes all the wastewater from the majority of Haley pumps it up to uh, the Woodside plant. And so we're kind of taking this dual approach to improving habitat, improving floodplain connectivity, and then also uh, protecting this pump station because if that thing blew out, uh, people wouldn't be able to flush their toilets. Yeah, it would not be good. As we kick off another big season of fly fishing, I'd like to connect you with Drifthook to make sure your fly selection is seamless this year. Drifthook has everything from nymphs to dry flies, hoppers, streamers, and of course, their Euro Nymph fly kits. You can order right now at drifthook.com. That's D R I F T H O O K, drifthook.com, and use the code SWING at checkout to get 15% off your first order. And what is so, let's, let's um, expand out high level stuff and think. I don't know the area that well. I mean, we've been working up and around the Snake River. Like I said, we were up in, you know, Idaho Falls there recently. But maybe describe the Wood River overall. Kind of where is it coming from? Where is it flowing into? And maybe some of the other big tributaries. Yeah, I think a good way to kind of go about this is look at it historically. And the Big Wood is not, it's not a you know a history or a story that's really uncommon to the American West. It's basically in South Central Idaho. Um, it was kind of near the, or, you know, the original Oregon Trail. Um, and initially what we saw is fur trappers going in there and kind of exploiting the region in the early to mid-1800s. There's a funny quote from Alexander Ross where he says in his journal that in the vicinity of Trail Creek, which is one of the main tribs of the Big Wood, um, were some of the finest appearances of beaver we had we had yet seen. And so... That was kind of the first economic driver for the region. And then, of course, that transitioned into um, the mining boom in the late 1800s. And they found uh, galena ore, a lot of gold, a lot of silver. Um, And so that's left kind of a legacy on some of the impacts and the streams and and the rivers that we see here today. And then you had sheep sheep grazing come in. At one time, this was one of the larger... uh, sheep shipping centers in the world only second to australia and so the heavy grazing drastically diminished the riparian plant communities and also some of the the morphology of the the stream channels and some of the tributaries shortly after that the union pacific railroad was built and was skirting the banks of the big woods by the early 1900s and ultimately this kind of led to the development of the sun valley resort that we all know today and that then you know we kind of transitioned from uh, resource extraction or sheep to um, kind of a tourist community that we see today. And then a lot of the developments, particularly along the river, has just been 
people wanting to live here because of the really, really, really good uh, outdoor recreational opportunities. So that's kind of the the backstory of, you know, how we got to where we're at today and kind of the degradation that we saw to kind of get us into this, um, you know, conservation ethos that we're in today. And I mean, ultimately our goal, you know, from in my program with the river department is just to see some of the fish sizes return to what we saw historically. And I think, you know, talking to old timers, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. We see old, you know, really old photos from the early 1900s of just a uh, huge ginormous trout that you don't see other places in the West. And that is not, that's the thing of the past. We do not see that today. The, the abundant. What trout were those, uh, Corey, that would you think back then? They're uh, they're red band trout. Oh wow! Yeah, they're red band trout. the The area was stocked. You know, we had a hatchery program that was operating from as early as you know nineteen thirteen all the way to two thousand, and they still stock the bigwood today with triploid fish. So they're non reproducing, but there's evidence. There's been some research going on through Fish and Game and uh, Matt Campbell out of his shop and eagle about a, genet- a genetically divergent species of red band trout that's only found here in the Wood River Basin. Oh, wow. Like different then. So similar, like you said, the Deschutes has red band trout. So a similar species, yeah. but different. So there's, you know, the interior Columbia red band trout, which people are familiar with. There's some in California that are kind of genetically divergent or, or protected. Um, and so this research is is pretty cutting edge and new. I mean, this is all stuff that I was seeing come out at the wild trout symposium last year, but essentially, even though the, the trout population has been, there's been a little bit of introgression from, from the hatchery program. Uh, what we're seeing is a completely divergent species that's nowhere else in the West. And there's actually an article in it about it in, um, let me see what magazine this was. It was one of the fly fishing magazines fly fishermen. Um, and that just came out in October. So this is all kind of new stuff that we're just starting to learn more about and get, get really excited about. Yeah, this is awesome. Wow. So yeah, yeah, you have a lot going. And, and remind us again on introgression. What, what does that mean in relation to trout? Yeah. Introgression is when you have um, a native or wild species that's breeding with um, hatchery struck. That's not a triploid. And just for, for folks that don't know, a triploid is a fish species that's made, you, you know, it's put together in a lab where there's three sets of chromosomes instead of two. So the fish is able to, to grow, but it's not able to reproduce. Yeah, like that's seed, awesome. seedless watermelons or bananas, they, they use the same technology. Oh, same tech. All right. And the cool thing about triploids is like in some areas, especially like Canada, BC, these fish, because they don't go through the, the process of, um, you know, eggs and stuff like that, they can get really big, right? Is that the same case with maybe these fish you're talking about here? Well, the for the for the triploid fish, um, that's that's not what we see here in the basin. The the kind of common narrative in, in talking to again old timers and also talking to a lot of the guide shops, the size distribution is relatively small. I mean, if you go out for a day on the big wood, um, what you're going to see a lot of is probably 12 to 14 inch fish, and it's a it's a great fishery because you can take you know newcomers out and throw on a big bushy dry fly um, and you can have pretty good success just fish in pocket water and big pools 
are thrown on an elk hair and get people into the sport of fly fishing, which is great. But for those of us, you know, that are looking for, you know, something a little more exciting, um, it hasn't it hasn't been providing over the past couple decades, is my understanding. I mean, every once in a while you get a big behemoth that's pulled out stripping a big streamer, but that's um, pretty few and far between. Fishhound Expeditions is back this year to help you imagine and discover your Alaskan fishing experience. From the remote multi-day heli trips into a backcountry float trip to a single-day guide along the amazing road system in Alaska, Fishhound has a trip for you. Find out why Fishhound Expeditions is our go-to Alaskan outfitter and why they can help you live your greatest trip this year. Check them out now at fishhoundexpeditions.com. That's fishhound, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-D. Check in with Adam and let him know you heard about them through this podcast. And so it sounds like overall similar things that have been impacted, probably lots of the American West, like you said, beavers, removal, you know, everything's uh, extraction. And then basically now we're here where you got Sun Valley, which is one of the most popular probably you know, destination places, you know, as far as what it is. And, uh, and then you got Ketchum and then you have the big wood. So talk about maybe, so where is the big wood ultimately flowing into? Yeah. So the big wood, um, kind of, so where we're at, where we're positioned in the Valley, it's kind of an alluvial stretch where everything's getting deposit. The river starts to really widen. Um, this is kind of that stretch between, um, Bellevue and Haley and down to Stanton crossing when it's watered. Um, it really starts to widen. Um, it can change course, you know, depending on what happens the previous flood season. And then it makes its way down kind of into what we refer to as the desert and goes into the Ma- Magic Reservoir, flows into Magic, um, and then that's there's a you know dam at the bottom of it. And they mostly use it for irrigation purposes uh, for folks down and um, operating off the Richfield Canal. And that can be a really productive fishery, depending on the time of the year, Um, usually the summertime, late summer, and then they shut off the water in about October, mid-October, and so that fishery shuts down. But then eventually the big wood keeps going, Little Wood River comes in, and then eventually they kind of merge and it forms the Malad uh, River, which there's only a short section of that before running into the Snake River. And there's a gorge um, on the Malad um, that's about, it's a waterfall, it's about 200 feet high. And so this is the theory behind why those red band species are uh, unique, because I think the theory is that that's been there for maybe 60,000 years. Um, so those fish haven't had an opportunity to reproduce with any of the interior Columbia red band species. Yeah, that makes sense. So so basically the wood flows down through all that area, and then eventually it drops into the uh, the Snake River somewhere. Is that the case? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty close to Hagerman. Hagerman. Okay. Yep. So that's the snake down there. Okay. So yeah, I mean, the wood is huge. How many miles long is the, is the big wood? Oh man, that's a good question. We, I mean, we really only focus on everything from kind of magic reservoir up to the SNRA, which is the sawtooth national record. Yep. And so that's maybe 50 river miles or so. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So we got the uh, the big wood is going down. We kind of went through that whole thing, how it drops into the snake. You know, and we're lower down. We're kind of hitting the snake below, uh, kind of near Twin Falls or below Twin Falls. And then um, and then maybe talk about just a couple of projects. You mentioned some, but what would be, 
you know, some things you're working on right now that are kind of, uh, you know, with the land trust? Yeah, probably the, um, the biggest one that we have in the mix, I'll just mention, we, we probably have maybe half a dozen that are kind of in the hopper at, at differing stages of design. And um, I, I think probably the biggest one that most people are excited about, and you might have a chance to check this out when uh, you come in the fall, but we're working on um, a project out, right outside of Ketchum. Um, it's called the Warm Springs Preserve Project. And um, there used to be an old golf course uh, just west of Ketchum, pretty close to the confluence of Warm Springs Creek and the Bigwood River. And so kind of how they built this golf course was by excavating the stream channel and kind of layering or terracing back that material to build this this nine-hole golf course. There used to be a restaurant there. Um, it was a ranch way back in the day. And so it's it's changed hands a couple times, and from like 2009 until um, 2021, um, it just sat in the hands of a developer. And so the community, it's it's pretty great because the community rallied together to raise about nine million dollars to acquire wow. this parcel just right outside of downtown Ketchum. And so uh, the city of Ketchum is the property owner, and they reached out to us to kind of manage and guide. The restoration so it's 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 been really great working with them uh the community's been very involved we've had a bunch of uh outreach and community meetings and open houses to just kind of get people's input on like hey this is your space what do you want to do with it how do you how do you envision it and so it's it's colloquial been known as either the golf course or or the dog park most people will go there now and and take their dogs because it's it's mostly just kind of you know, wide open space with grass. It's like 65 acres. But due to, you know, kind of how they created the golf course, the stream's in, in pretty bad shape. Um, and so that's kind of how we got involved. And it's about 1.3 miles of stream frontage. And so really what we're doing is we're re-rigging the irrigation system. It was put in in the 1960s. We're re-rigging that to help conserve water, to keep it keep it in stream. We're restoring that 1.3 miles of stream, doing a bunch of, um, you know, log jam, log jam installs, throwing in some boulders and some boulder clusters to maintain the grade and, and add some hydraulic complexity. We're putting some new side channels and taking out about 35,000 cubic yards of fill material so that during high flows, the, the creek has access to its floodplain. That's kind of just the the tip of the iceberg. It's It's a huge project, probably the biggest one that will have ever happened in the big wood basin. So right. we're really excited about it. The community's really stoked on it. When you get a chance this fall, I, I think we're probably going to be doing construction this fall. We're going through some, oh, nice. we're going through some regulatory stuff right now just to make sure we're on track with that. But um, we're, we're gearing up to do it in 2024. So when you're here in October, it'll be like huge yellow Go machines on. everywhere. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. And this, is this like from the mouth of Warm Springs, uh, Warm Springs Creek up that that mile, or is it above that? It's um, it's not quite down to the mouth. the The BLM owns kind of the triangle where where there's the confluence, but it's just upstream from that and goes up about yeah a mile and mile a third. Cool. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, nine million dollars. That's a lot of money. A lot of a lot of stuff. A lot of work can be done with that, right? Yeah, and that was just kind of what was the genesis of the entire project. And so I, th I think why we really like it, especially as a land trust, is because we're always kind of navigating this, you know, confluence of like community 
and re- restoring the river and providing access, but making sure it's like as natural as possible. And what I really like about this one is that the it's kind of a gradient of different uses as you kind of go like from the riverbank up to like the top fairway. So you kind of have the top fairway where people can walk their dogs. There's going to be Frisbee golf. And then it kind of slowly transitions into, you know, kind of more of like a park-like setting. And then down by the river, we're just trying to keep it as natural as possible so that people can fish and, and the fishery gets improved. We're adding a bunch of pools and like I said, log jams. And so it's kind of got, it's kind of hitting all all the marks. And we applied for a, a Bureau Rec grant in March and that's Bureau Reclamation. And um, just found out in November, we were awarded um, close to $2 million to do this project. So we're, we're pretty excited. Wow. Amazing. Cool. Yeah. So that's a, that's a huge project and maybe give us a heads up on some other types of projects that, that you would be doing and then we'll, We'll uh, jump into a couple other things. Yeah, totally. So we, our kind of bread and butter is, uh, you know, doing on the ground restoration work. And, you know, so what does that, what does that look like? A lot of our focus is going to be on and centered around tributary enhancement and reconnection, adding in channel habitat and complexity, reconnecting flood floodplains by removing, you know, stuff like berms and levees and, and riprap and which is just you know large boulders that are used as bank armor and you know so really for us it's all about reconnection on a watershed scale both aquatically and then also throughout the terrestrial environment and i think why we're so focused on this is that you know for most wildlife at least in this region we found that 80 percent of their life cycle kind of depends on functioning riparian or wetland areas so you know, to that end, wetlands and, and slow water areas are one of the most threatened ecotones in the world, um, you know, probably because they're flat. They're pretty easy to manipulate for, for human benefit. So our projects are all kind of focused around that. Um, the other one that I'm probably project that I'm most excited about that we have kind of in the queue um, is we're working on providing fish passage up Trail Creek. Trail Creek's the um, probably second biggest tributary behind Warm Springs. And so there's a, a, a dam that's been in uh, near the Sun Valley Resort. It's called the Trail Creek Dam. And there's an aesthetic pond um, that's above it. It's, it's not providing any, you know, it's not for irrigation or, or anything like that. But it's kind of a, it, it's a little bit sad because below the dam, you know, in the springtime when these red band trout are moving up, they basically just stack up below the dam. And, you know, we have pictures of, hundred fish in there just waiting to move up, but they can't. So we've, we've started uh, the conversations with the Sun Valley company, um, the forest service, Trout Unlimited on kind of what, what our options are there and what their long-term plan is uh, for that dam. So that one's kind of in the, that's more of like in the Genesis stage of development. Um, But that's one that um, I'm getting really, really excited about and, and trying to just figure out some type of solution to kind of get everyone get everyone feeling copacetic. How do you so with that fish passage project take a, a step back on that. So as you look at that you see you know kind of what the ultimate goal is maybe for you or forever you know to remove the thing I'm thinking but how how do you walk us through the steps like what are the steps to get that thing implemented like from where you are now what are the first few steps to get that rolling? Yeah, so we've we've gone through kind of creating a concept of what that could look like and this dam is it's a lot older and the way that they control the reservoir level is what they call like a stop lock. It's made out of aluminum. And as they want to build up 
the height of the reservoir, they just add these stop logs on top of each other with kind of like a, it's like a crane mechanism. Um, so we first started talking with the company about providing passage through that spillway. And so we worked on developing a concept uh, with a designer and that's pretty much where we're at now. I think, you know, with all dam projects, it would be nice to see the entire thing come down. I don't know if that's going to be feasible or possible. Right. Um, yeah. That would be like, perf- you know, best case scenario. So we're kind of working on um, other alternatives in case something like that doesn't go through. That makes sense. So, and what would be that just in general passage project like this or any other thing? What What would you, what would be the first few steps getting this role into you know, getting a project on the ground? I think the first and foremost is just the communication piece and um, trying to build the rapport with um, all the partners that are involved, including the Sun Valley company, um, and just getting everyone feeling comfortable with like, let's look at all the different approaches. Let's look at the pros and the cons of each of those, you know, alternatives, and then designing that out based on what's going to give, you know, kind of the the greatest return on investment for, for all the parties involved. Awesome. No, this is great. I think um, I think what we might do is leave this one, um, you know, a little bit shorter today. And as we get in uh, to the project, maybe I can or get into the area, maybe I can stop by and check with you and take a look at some of the stuff and we could follow up. But I did want to check today before we get out of here on maybe somebody listening. They could be in the area. Maybe they're in Ketchum or, you know, somewhere or maybe even around the country. What would you tell somebody if they're listening now, like a few things they can do to support their local species. And I know all areas are different and things like that, but maybe think of your area. What would you be telling somebody who's locally that they could do to have an impact? Cause I think some of this, you know, people, people feel like, you know, what can you do? What can I do? I'm just a person. How can I help this whole process? Yeah. And I think there's a couple different avenues, you know, uh, kind of at the bottom is just like we here at the land trust. And also there's a lot of other great NGOs in this Valley doing, doing work for, for the river and, you know, for the landscape. And, you know, when we see dollars, it allows us to do our work. And, you know, I tell a lot of people, I, although I work for the land trust, ultimately I work for the river. And when I say that, like I, I'm working to see fish populations change. Um, and so, you know, having people donate really enables us to continue that work, continue those conversations um, and do on the ground projects and monitoring that's going to make a difference. So that's like, you know, kind of the easy, just send us stuff and, and we're, we're working on it. And where could they go for you guys? What would be the best place where they can donate? Check that out. Yeah. If you, if you could just go to woodriverlandtrust.org, that's, uh, that's kind of the nexus to, to doing that, that work. So that would be step one. I think the second one would be um, being vocal and being an advocate for a couple different things, you know, regulation changes are looking at how this basin is stocked or the hatchery program, um, being vocal about that, showing showing up at, you know, community meetings or stakeholder meetings. I think, I think that goes a long way. And then also just getting involved with like your local TU chapter. Those guys do a lot of great, they do fish rescues and, and all that stuff is good, but just showing up and being vocal and having an opinion about some of these issues that we're facing in in this basin. Perfect. I love that. That's pretty simple. Like three things, you know, donate, you know, you mentioned kind of advocate, you know, and I guess, you know, and stay local, get involved in the local stuff, right? There's volunteer, there's all sorts of stuff. I'm sure TU and other folks are doing where you can get on the ground. It feels like the volunteering pieces is definitely a nice one because it actually gets people out there and there. It's like that visceral connection, right? To, to see this stuff. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people view 
fishing as you know a way to volunteer get in, involved with conservation but i, I think it really isn't because when we hear feedback from people that are out on the river you know that are actually out there or see you know sketchy stuff going on like maybe you know construction that's not permitted or anything like that just being out on the river and fishing like that is another form of conservation that i, I think people neglect Togiak River Lodge is the Alaskan adventure every fly fisherman dreams of. The lodge specializes in remote and exclusive fishing trips for all five species of salmon, plus rainbows, dolly varden, and much more. Togiak is the only lodge with access to 30 plus miles of river, the best guides, the best boats, and lots of fish with little pressure. I'll be heading up there this summer, so check in with Jordan and the crew right now to find out what they have available. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togiak to learn more right now. That's Togiak, T-O-G-I-A-K, to discover that wilderness experience you've been looking for. Well, this is this is good. Anything else we want to highlight here before we get out of here? And like I said, we'll be in touch moving ahead, but what else would you tell somebody if they didn't know about what's going on in that area, about maybe some projects you have upcoming or just anything we missed today? Yeah, totally. I think the big thing that I want uh, people to kind of take away with is that, um, so I, I worked in, in Oregon and Washington for for some years, and, and Idaho is just a little bit archaic with how we're looking at, you know, conserving and protecting and restoring our, our fish populations. And I think, you know, there's a big opportunity. Idaho is a great fishery, and there's a big opportunity in this basin, particularly with this, you know, kind of gen- genetically divergent red band species to put a big emphasis on this and draw attention to it and bring attention to it um, and conserve this species. You know, they're currently not threatened or a species of concern, um, but we want to continue doing projects and working with our partners and stakeholders to develop kind of a plan to to put these projects in place. And um, it's a it's a really great time to be doing restoration work because of the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed um, when Biden came into office. And a lot of those funds that, you know, these these conservation groups like us that we're going to be able to tap into, those are, are probably going to expire in 2027. So we kind of have this like really unique window to get big work done, you know, stuff like the Trail Creek Fish Passage or stuff like warm springs. Um, and so I think if you are interested in this work, there's there's never been a better time to get involved either with your time or with your resources. That's perfect. And when we come up there, I'm not even sure on the fishing as far as where you would be fly fishing up in that area. Do you, is this where you kind of head up the highway, go up to some of the upper waters? Or where typically, if, if somebody came into the fly shop there and they're like, oh, I want to go fishing, where would they send them? Well, you know what's great about this area is that like, it's so there's so many good access points all the way down from Bellevue all the way up into the SNRA. Like you can pretty much fish wherever. Like the private aspect is is, is not an issue. Um, I'll just say as, as someone that loves fishing on the big wood, I, I really like going up to Upper Warm Springs because you can kind of get a little bit of solitude. It's smaller river. There's some some really big deep holes and like if you want to go catch a dozen fish in an hour, just go fish some big holes on Upper Warm Springs. Oh, cool. There you go. Upper Warner Springs. Awesome. All right, Corey. Well, this is going to be uh, exciting. Um, I think we could leave it there for today. We'll send everybody out to woodriverlandtrust.org. And uh, if folks have questions, but yeah, I just want to say thanks for coming on today and definitely the great work you're doing. Excited to you know see these projects. That's a cool thing. In a couple of years, we could check back in with you and see some 
new uh, new you know benefits to these native fish that you're talking about. So uh, thanks again for your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. I appreciate it. Hopefully we can uh, connect when you're here in October and um, good luck with that. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon.